Bible is made up of 66 God-breathed books, scrolls. At least 30 of them are short enough to read in 30 minutes or less. The book of James is that kind of book. It's small. It's easy to read. Very little mystery to it. It's down to earth. You can read it as I have read it several times in about 20 minutes or less. In fact, so many truths, though, come out of this book. They tumble over as if they are the waters of Niagara. It's hard to to outline it. In fact, that's difficult for people in my position. One particular author cataloged nearly 30 different topics that just cascade one after another of topics James addresses. But each topic is addressed in very practical terms, down-to-earth language, He writes with gut-level reality. He he writes about where we live. And here's why. Much of the New Testament epistles deliver to us the precepts of our faith. James is passionate about the practice of our faith. By way of contrast, the Apostle Paul most often deals with what we believe. James is going to deal with how we behave And he literally leaves no stone unturned. It's as if he's determined not to miss anything. He doesn't come into the living room of our lives where we've been expecting company and everything is dusted and and the carpet is vacuumed. No, he goes right over and opens the door to the coat closet where we've stuffed everything until company leaves. He's going to pry into our, our private lives. He's going to rifle through every drawer He's even going to have the audacity to examine our checkbooks and tell us that they reveal our true priorities in life. He's going to look at our prayer request list and and inform us of what we really want from God. The Spirit of God through the book of James is going to give us something like what we might refer to as an annual physical examination. How many of you are putting one of those off? I'm sure many of you. I I am. I, I feel fine. My doctor told me a couple of weeks ago that I was due for my second colonoscopy. I'm convinced they are unbiblical. (laughs) They cannot be right. Nothing about them is right. Well, James is going to take us into the divine examination room, and he's going to listen to our hearts. He's going to look into our ears. He's going to have us open our mouths and say, ah, while he examines our tongues. He's going to go deeper still and sift through our motives and explore our thoughts. Now, just about every time you go to the doctor, you leave with a little piece of white paper on which the doctor has scribbled something unintelligible. And you take it to the pharmacist who has the gift of interpretation. There's something you got to take, you got to swallow, you got to apply, you got to do. In the little book of James, there are 54 imperatives, almost one every other verse. That means 54 words or phrases could end with an exclamation point. Leads one author to say that the book of James is a do this, do that book, which taken to heart will dynamically affect our lives on every level. See, James is primarily after one thing, turning precept into practice, turning belief 
into behavior, turning acceptance into application. See, he's going to go beyond exegesis and deal with the ethics of life. That's the challenge, isn't it, of our Christianity? Isn't that what you struggle with and I struggle with? Taking what we believe and turning it into behavior? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said in the, in the late 1800s, the problem of all problems is getting Christianity into practice. That's why you have in this little book 54 imperatives. You'll, you'll have 54 prescriptions from Dr. James. And while most physicals are concerned with how we're growing old, James is concerned with whether or not we're growing up in the faith. And so at the outset, we need to say, Lord, we offer you the key to every door in our hearts and lives. We refuse the temptation to post signs that say in certain areas, restricted access, do not enter. We acknowledge, Lord, your right to free access to every corner and, and every cupboard. And we only ask that you allow us to not remain unchanged, but radically changed. So build into us even now the willingness to turn awareness into application. We pray. And all the people said? Amen. Amen. Now my plan is for us to study through and, and, and finish this entire book in this one school year. And all the people again said? I knew you'd be supportive. Thank you. So with that in mind, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. And follow along as I read at verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, stop. Now we've got a whole school year, okay? There's, there's no need to hurry. No, actually, what I want you to discover, we're going to cover just a few words. But I want you to discover in these first few words of verse 1, the key to putting into practice the entire book of James. I believe that, that my biggest problem, and perhaps yours as well, in applying the book of James is that I don't really spend enough time in verse 1. You see, until you're willing to apply the truth in verse 1, you're not ready to dare to say what he says in verse 2. You're not ready for the truth of chapter 1 and chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 until you're ready and willing to say what he says in verse 1. Now, as we cover most of this verse today, I want to point out three things that you can hang your mental hats on. First of all, I want you to notice James' signature. Now, whenever anybody, at least in our culture, today writes a letter... They sign at the bottom of the last page their signature. Whenever you send an email, more than likely you'll sign it at the bottom of the email. Now in the days of Christ, in these ancient days, their custom was to sign letters at the beginning 
which is not a bad idea. You know exactly who wrote it. Now, the problem for us here at the outset is that the New Testament mentions five different men named James who followed Christ. Which one was the author? Now, if you research each of these men, which I have, and I won't bore you with all of the details, I'll give you what I've come up with, and that is basically two potential candidates. And I'll give you the one I believe that was the author. One of the candidates could very well be the Apostle James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. You remember they were given a nickname by Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, the sons of thunder. That's because they went to the town to deliver the gospel, and the town didn't want to hear it. And these two brothers, James and John, said, Hey, Lord, do you want us to call fire down? And you could tell they wanted it. Let's do it. And so he names them sons of thunder, literally thunderbolts. The problem with this particular James being the author, however, is that he will become the first of 12 apostles to be martyred in A.D. 44 by the order of of Herod Agrippa, which rules out his potential for writing this book, which comes a little later. The centuries-old view on authorship, and even today the view of evangelical scholars, is that the James who wrote this little book was was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus, which means something absolutely dramatic happened in this young man's life to get him to that point. And I want to take some time showing you what that was. Now, Matthew's gospel informs us that as Jesus began his ministry, none of his siblings believed his claims. In fact, it was more than unbelief. The Bible tells us that they were offended by his claim. As Jesus, in Matthew 13, is visiting his hometown of Nazareth and preaching, the Jews effectively said, who is this guy claiming to be and who does he think he is? In fact, they go on to say, is not this one the carpenter's son? In other words, how can he be who he claims to be? We know his dad, Joseph the carpenter. We knew him while he was living. And the text goes on further. They said, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or Jude and his sisters? Are they not all with us? And they all took offense at him. In other words, the people who were offended by Christ's claim to be God's son were not only the people of the village, but his own brothers, half-brothers, and sisters. They're saying, I know, we we think the same thing. Who does he think he is? They're mortified. They are, in the text, offended by this. Mark's gospel tells us that when Christ's Kinsmen, a word used of blood relations, his brothers and sisters and his own family, heard that he had launched his public ministry and he had actually called disciples after him to follow him. Mark 3 tells us they, his brothers, half-brothers, went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. You could translate it, they thought he was out of his mind. So here they are interrupting 
the public ministry of Christ as it is beginning. They come out and they interrupt it and they're saying that people were really sorry, were embarrassed about all of this. He's obviously lost his mind. They came to take custody of him. They came to take him away. They thought he needed help. John's gospel adds, for even his brothers were not believing in him. John 7, 5. Now, obviously, if you hold to the clear statements in these verses that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, that his siblings born to Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was virgin-born, you've got another issue on your hands, don't you? In fact, you have several. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has labored to redefine the words of Scripture in order to uphold the belief that Mary was who they claim even to this day that she is, the Virgin Mary, perpetually virgin, that she never had any more children. So James could not be the half-brother of Christ, the second-born to Mary, the first-born son of Joseph and Mary. The Roman church believes that Mary was not an ordinary housewife, not an ordinary mother. She was unique among all human beings. In fact, in 1845, the pope declared that Mary had never sinned. This is the papal doctrine called the Immaculate Conception, that Mary had actually been born without original sin, and she never sinned ever one time in her entire life. She was certainly never contaminated by sexual relations within marriage. All of these views are necessary, of course, that's their thinking, to allow the Church of Rome to exalt the Virgin Mary to a present status as the sinless co-mediator, co-redemptrix, along with Christ, and as well exalt celibacy above marriage. Then along comes James and some other boys and some girls, and you got a problem. So the Roman church has offered up a couple of answers to these problems. One answer is that James and the others weren't literally brothers and sisters of Jesus. They were cousins. They would point out the truth that the word can be used in a generic sense of endearment, just as you might say to somebody today, hello, brother Sam, hello, brother John. And that would be true. Hello, sister Susan or sister Cindy. In fact, the New Testament clearly tells pastors. Paul exhorted the pastor and the pastors of the assemblies to treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So obviously the use of the word can have, can have figurative or metaphorical usage. The problem is the Greeks were smart enough to have a word for cousin. And they never, ever, ever one time used in the scriptures, the word cousin for a biological brother or sister always used the word adelphos, never once used to describe a cousin. Now keep in mind that the church knew nothing of this theory of Mary's lifelong perpetual virginity until the fourth century when a church leader named Jerome produced it. Most scholars are quietly aware, and some not so quietly aware, that his writings were produced for no other reason than to promote the growing exaltation and place of Mary. Now there's another view that is promoted and it is the view that, well, if they're not cousins, what it really was here is that Joseph had been married before 
And he had six children. He was, a, he was a widower when he met Mary and took her to be his wife. There's not a shred of evidence in the Bible and outside of the Bible of, of this fact. Joseph does disappear from the scene, leading many to believe that he was older. He may not have been, but he evidently did die of some disease or accident because of the fact that when Christ was on the cross that he delivered over the care of his mother uh, to John the Apostle, where if Joseph had been alive, he would have been the one to take care of her. There's simply not any verse anywhere telling us that Joseph was a widower with six kids. On the other hand, what we do have in Scripture is that Mary was not a perpetual virgin, but that she had more children. Now, by the way, the reason I'm spending so much time on this issue is not so much to take on Roman Catholic tradition. I realize I'm I'm preaching to the choir here for the most part. But to eventually get us all to the point where we understand that James' life and his first recorded words in Scripture following his conversion to Christ indicate something incredibly dramatic. And I'll get there eventually. Hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 1 if you'd like. Matthew chapter 1. And let me show you something. Here the angel Gabriel, we believe from the analogy of Scripture, is coming to Joseph and telling him that Mary has not been unfaithful during their betrothal period. And of course he would believe that because she was now carrying a child. Notice the middle part of verse 20. Joseph Son of David, the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, at this point, even though she is carrying a child, she is still a virgin. She is conceived by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We say that and we don't understand it, but that's what the Bible says. What that means then is that Jesus will not have a biological earthly father. Which is incredibly important because that means then he will not have a sin nature that is passed from father to children. Called the Adamic sin nature. Which has a lot to say about his perfection and his inability to sin though being tempted in all points like as we. Now look at verse 24. And Joseph awoke... From his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Notice this, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. How clear is that? Until she gave birth. You can literally translate that until she gave birth. Now, if you want to make James out to be a cousin of Jesus, you still have a problem with Mary's perpetual virginity. Now, if you turn over to Luke chapter 2, another interesting phrase appears. Luke chapter 2, this is where Joseph and Mary have made it to Bethlehem in order to pay their taxes in this special census. They're in some cave, perhaps hewn out of rock, maybe, maybe even an outdoor makeshift stall where people of the inn were keeping their animals. But here they are. Look at verse 6. While they were there, 
The days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her what? Firstborn son. She gave birth to her firstborn, her prototokos is the word, her firstborn, which is a Greek word that is never, ever used of a woman who delivers only one child. It's used to make sense that you would make sense of when you read it. This is the first and there are more coming, right? This happens to be the firstborn, which is significant because Jesus then was born while she was yet a virgin, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah and Moses in that proto-evangelium, that first gospel, which delivers to us that the seed of the woman is on its way. Unusual phrase. We understand it now with the New Testament truths. Of course, along with Isaiah, that that would mean that the mother of Jesus would be a virgin. Firstborn, prototokos, the first in line. When my wife delivered our twin sons, She could say that Benjamin was the firstborn. She could say, he is my prototokos. She didn't call him that. She probably wanted to call him a few other things. But anyway, (laughs) prototokos means firstborn. Why? Because two and a half minutes later, the secondborn arrives. Firstborn means others are coming. Maybe a year later, maybe with the case of twins or triplets or quadruplets. Soon after, this would be the word used. Now, you need to also understand that firstborn here means that Jesus Christ was not the secondborn. And that's significant because that would mean then that she wasn't a virgin. Thus destroying the doctrine of the virgin birth, the perfection of our Lord, prophesied by Moses and Isaiah and even the angel Gabriel. He was the first son to be delivered by Mary. Now, in Matthew 13, 55, we're given the names of Jesus Christ's half-brothers in that text. They're given in typical biblical fashion in the order of age, which is consistent in Scripture, which lets us know then that James, who appears first, was the second born, closest to Christ in age. Then comes Joseph, named after Daddy, evidently. Simon, Judas, or Jude, as he became known. He also wrote a little letter. We may study that one next. Then Matthew mentions his sisters. Doesn't tell us how many. It's just plural. There may be more than two. Could be three or four. What you have is you have at least four brothers and two sisters. It might have been four and four. It might have been eight. It might have been nine. She could have been keeping up with Mrs. Duggar, for all we know. What you have, however, is this, and this is significant. You have then, when you understand this, a single mother raising for at least several years seven children. If she had a child every two years, when Jesus Christ died in his early 30s, the youngest child would have still been a teenager. Listen, my admiration for Mary isn't lessened by the truth. It's increased. While we don't slip over into false doctrine, it causes me to appreciate her even more. 
Add to this the fact that while she believed the claims of her son without fully understanding them, none of the other children did. John's Gospel tells us they mocked Christ. His brothers mocked him when he he was involved in public ministry. His his brother said, you know, why are you hanging around here? What you ought to do is go make things public. Go and demonstrate your power. You only want a name. They said, you only want the world to follow you. The implication there is you just want power and popularity. That's what his brother, this is James and his other brother saying these things. Listen, I want you to understand that this home was filled with turmoil over the claims of Christ. It was in a moment's peace, especially as the older children grew and grew in their resentment against him. Christ knew nothing of the closest family members understanding him or believing in him. He was ostracized from his own brothers and sisters. I want you to understand the fact that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief long before the cross. His home life was full of turmoil. And drama, which only added to Mary's burden. Add to that the the fact that the family was poor. You have at least seven children, if not more, before Joseph evidently eventually died, leaving Mary a widow and a single mother. Maybe you can identify with her today. Maybe even today you are fellowshipping with the sufferings of Christ because of your own family. Maybe you can identify with the Lord, being from a family that none of them believe you're the only one. They don't appreciate your faith one little bit. Never a word of encouragement. In fact, they think you've lost a marble or two. You're out of your mind. You've never had a mother or a father or a sibling appreciate your walk with God, your testimony for Christ. In many ways, you've been alone. I want you to take heart from an inside snapshot of this home as we understand the truth of God's Word. So, more to the point, how do you go from from listening as, as James mocks Christ? How do you go from that point to him following Christ? How do you go from him denying and refusing the claims of Christ to being sold out to the claims of Christ? How do you go from being a a, a disbeliever, an unbeliever, to, to an author? How do you go from this point to that point? How do you become a how do, you, how do you go from being somebody who's not interested in Christ to somebody who dies for Christ during the seventh year of Nero's reign as a martyr? Something dramatic happened. James wasn't even at the scene of Christ's crucifixion. None of his brothers or sisters were there, only Mary and a handful of others. The family's all probably back at the, the house saying, we, we wish mom would wake up to the truth. She's up there on that hill. Can't she see there's a storm coming? That cross proves mom needs to wake up. Jesus was not the Messiah. That's what they're saying probably back at the house. So what happened to James? One verse says it all. Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers 
In chapter 15, I'll read it for the sake of time. He's telling specific events that occur related to the passion of Christ. He writes in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, the rest of the twelve, verse 6, and After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now that is, they're alive, but some have died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. He appeared to James. Can you imagine that meeting? What did Jesus say? Hello, my brother. Everything I told you, I was. I am. And somewhere in the course of the resurrection of Christ and where we meet him in this little book, James responded much like Thomas who said, My Lord and my what? My God. Evidently, from what we know of James, the believer, as far as you can go back in church history, the predominant belief was that the resurrected Lord commended his brother into ministry and he would become the leader in the church of Jerusalem during extremely difficult transitional times. This James would would go on to become the author of this book of the Bible. We're still studying 2,000 years later in which he encourages us all to get real with our our faith. And by the way, one more sidebar here for those of you that wished. Maybe you've had moments and maybe even you're a little discouraged. Maybe maybe you've, you've wished you'd come to Christ earlier in life. You're troubled by time that that was wasted, time that you lost. Can you imagine what James could have regretted? For years he had eaten at the same table. He'd played at the same backyard. He'd slept in the same room. He attended the same synagogue school at age six, just young enough but old enough to keep up with Jesus. He wrote out the same Hebrew homework. As he watched the development of his amazing older brother who never seemed to do anything wrong, but it was all lost to him. He could have lived his life, the rest of his life, with bitter regret. Now in his early 30s. But the truth of Christ's resurrection changed everything just as it has for you. And like James, live life with an exclamation point. Put the pedal to the metal. James came to know Christ. He became known as a man who so closely communed with Christ. He was nicknamed Camel Knees. Eusebius, what we consider to be the first church historian in the first century living in the town of Caesarea, wrote that that James developed calluses on his knees. They grew leathery, and thus the nickname Camel Knees, from spending so much time on them in prayer. And don't miss this. James is praying to his half-brother 
whom he now knows is much more than that. He is the Lord of all that is God incarnate. What a unique relationship. His signature symbolizes the radical transformation of a man who once laughed at Christ but now lives for Christ. Let me show you something else. Not just his signature. Let me show you his status. Back in James chapter 1, verse 1, his signature reveals for us his identity. His status reveals for us his priority. Let me, let me read. You follow along. We'll go a little further. Ready? James, the Lord's half-brother. Oh, wait. Let me try again. James, the chairman of the Jerusalem council who, who directed the development of the church to embrace Gentiles from every nation. Well, no, let me try another one here. James, the man who grew up in the same house with the Messiah. And I can tell you some stories. James, one of the few who received a personal visit from the resurrected Lord James, here's a good one, the pastor of the largest church in the world. Now, all that's true. Every one of those statements are true. But what does he say? Look, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James says, you want to know my highest status in life? I'm a bondservant of God. Now, now Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19 will refer to James as the Lord's brother. But James prefers to speak of himself only as servant. In fact, the word for bondservant in this text is the word doulos, which literally can be rendered slave. It's a little rougher, isn't it, to our ears? It comes out of the slave culture and the slave market. Softened a bit with the idea of bond servant. Certainly a slave can be bonded to his master by choice. He can become, as it were, an indentured servant. This word doulos means you were born a slave. You have no hope of freedom from your master. You are entirely dependent upon him for everything. That's the, that's the word chosen here. The verb form of doulos means to bind, to chain. James then is saying, I am bound to Christ, my master, as a slave to his master. Now to the Greek world, and certainly our world, but, but back then especially this was a term of degradation. There were millions of slaves during the days of Christ. To the Greeks, and certainly to any culture, freedom and autonomy and being your own master represents the highest status of life. Success in life is not in serving, but in having people, what? Serve you. But this word, doulos, slave, is the word chosen by several of the apostles. Paul will refer to himself as a slave. He'll refer to Timothy and himself as a slave or as slaves. In Philippians 1, Peter will refer to himself in the same way in 2 Peter chapter 1 as a slave to God, as did Jude, the brother of James, in the first verse of his letter. You see, for the genuine believer, this word says it all. Doulos, slave, communicates ownership. 
possession, allegiance, dependence, subjection, loyalty. The reason the average Christian is not applying the genuine faith found in the book of James is because the average Christian has replaced the idea of God being master and we being slave with something a lot more palatable. How about God has a wonderful plan for your life if you belong to him? That'll sell better. How about you follow Jesus and he's going to give you your best life ever? That'll sell. One perceptive author by the name of Michael Horton, he's kind of like a terrier dog. He's always yapping away at the church to get in line. Very insightful. Reading one of his books he recently published entitled Christless Christianity, which is basically the doctrine espoused by the average church in America today. It really has nothing to do with Christ as master and Lord. He says this, Jesus Christ is now just a coach with a better game plan. He's a source of empowerment. He helps people become better. Christ came to improve our existence and he is a resource for what we have already decided we want. And yet we are promoting Christianity. You know what you ought to do? You really ought to try Jesus. You ought to try Jesus. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. And so people out there go, okay, I'll, I'll try him. I, I want to know that. I, I want that wonderful plan for my life. And so they add him to their lives. And then they hit a bump in the road. A miscarriage isn't wonderful. Bankruptcy isn't wonderful. A cheating spouse isn't wonderful. Sickness that won't go away isn't wonderful. Persecution for belonging to Christ isn't wonderful. The death of a child isn't wonderful. And on and on and on. I guess Jesus isn't working out. See, the average church in America has stopped studying through the Bible because you get to a book like James and you can't even get past verse 2 that talks about joy. How do you have joy in trials? What kind of Christianity is that? So they can't get past 2, but you know why? Because they never dealt with verse 1. Do you know the ingredients of salvation come out of the first century slave market? You were chosen. Ephesians 1. You have been bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself any longer. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are subject to his will and control. Philippians 2. You are called to give an account of your service. 2 Corinthians 5. You are regularly chastened or rewarded by him according to his own pleasure with or without an explanation. Hebrews chapter 12. And one day you are told that you can expect and you long for the day when you will hear the words. Again, doulos is the word used. Well done, thou good and faithful slave. The gospel has become twisted to fit the autonomy of the human heart. 
The message today is that Christianity should be accepted because it's the best picnic basket at the fair. It's the best ride. It's the best thrill. Everything is sunshine and cloudless days. The truth is we need to proclaim the freedom of the gospel from sin. For those enslaved to sin. I want to read you a text very quickly and I want you to listen to the balance of these thoughts. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin or of righteousness, that is obedience? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, the apostles' doctrine, to which you were committed. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in eternal life. See, here's the truth. Whether or not the world knows it, everyone is a slave to something. Everyone is enslaved. You are either enslaved to sin or righteousness. Everyone serves some master, even if they say, well, I'm free because I belong to myself. Well, you are your own master. The question then is, Whose slave are you? Whose slave are you? See, as you move through this book, the only thing that would ever challenge us to apply any of it is that we're categorically reminded in the very first verse that we are not the master of our lives. We are the slaves of God. I mean, why would you ever allow God to to change the way you talk? Why would you ever allow God to change the way you plan or dream or spend your money or relate to to anybody else or accept tribulation? Why would you ever do any of that for God? You will not unless he owns you. He owns you. And you find in that liberation with its enslavement to God. Christians are slaves to God. That isn't going to sell, is it? Could that be the reason so many people in America who claim to be Christians so soon bail out? Because they didn't understand the true gospel. This past week I went into the Verizon cell phone store. Down the street there next to Bob Evans. I know where places are by the restaurants that serve biscuits and gravy, so that's why I know. I was trying to get my daughter's cell phone to work. don't know why I'd want to do that, but I, I did want it to work. So I went in. We have a family plan uh, that really just covers my girls because they have Verizon services and systems. Marcia, my wife, and Candace and Charity. My sons are now on their own. Praise God. Hallelujah for that. <laughs> But I, I'm not on that plan because I have an iPhone. Verizon sells Blackberries. I have an iPhone. And so whenever you go into a store like that, you keep that in your pocket because there's not a lot of love in this competition. So while I'm standing there in line and I'm watching the screens as they flash all the advertisements relative to what their phones can do, and, and the advertisements come up and, and you watch them, and, and I had plenty of time and it was a long line, and so I'm watching them. And then I, I, I saw a quote that just came up on one of the screens, something about you are free. And it went to something else, and then, and then it went to another quote, and it said something like, never be ignored. 
And I thought, wow, that's great. Now, this is not in any way, in any way, a slam on those of you that have blackberries. That, that's your problem, okay? <laughs> All right. So I went home, and I'm studying. And on Friday, I thought, you know, that'd be a good illustration to actually show the flock. And so I thought, I'll go back and get pictures, and then I'll put them up on the screen so you can actually see. This is how you sell something. This is what sells. This is what works. So I went back and walked in. And the sales lady was there, and, and, and she asked me, you know, what brings you to Verizon today? And I said, well, um, I was in here yesterday, and I, I, I saw advertisements on your, your monitors over there, and, I, and then I realized what I was about to ask. I said, would it be okay if, if I, I took pictures of them on my um, iPhone? <laughs> she immediately said, I don't think so. She went over and talked to her manager, and she's pointing back over at me. I thought, I'm in trouble. I walked over and said, that's, that's okay. That, that's, that's okay. And, and I left. So you're going to have to take my word for it that that's what the screen said. But I thought, isn't that, isn't that ironic? And that's, by the way, true for iPhones and, 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 and droids and, and I guess the latest droid something. You know, that's, what is it? Droid X. Thank you. Eight-year-olds know the truth. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Mom, Dad. you got a long plan for that family. All right, but anyway, it's all says the same thing. Hey, man, you want status? You want to be free. And I love this one. You want to never be ignored? How's that? Yeah. I never want to be ignored. And I want to be free. James comes along and he effectively says, here's... here's Here's who I am. I am not free. I'm a slave. And I may go through my entire life as God's slave ignored. Now, just who does James belong to? We've noted the signature and his status very quickly. I want you to look at his Savior. The little book begins, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the grammatical details, but let me at least tell you that in the Greek New Testament, James does not include in this phrase any definite articles or indefinite articles, which makes it stunning. He simply strings together titles, which means you can read them in any order. You could literally translate this, James, the slave of Jesus Christ, God, Lord. You following me? James, the servant of God, Lord, Christ, Jesus. What you have here is one of the strongest texts describing the unity of the Godhead and the deity of Jesus Christ. He is called by James, both Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, and Christ, who is Jesus. In fact, in the fourth century, when Athanasius was defending the deity of Jesus Christ against the heresy of Arius, Arius was a popular teacher who was teaching that Jesus Christ was a God. 
and not the manifestation of the God. Arianism has been repackaged in recent generations in Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses teaching. It was James chapter 1 verse 1 that Athanasius used to topple the arguments of Arius and in the council win the day and deliver a blow to that false teaching. Where James says, I am a slave of God who effectively is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Stunning truth. What made it even more powerful is it was written by a man who could have said, well, I really know who he is. I grew up with him. He's, he's just a man who's enlightened. He's just a good man whom God glorified. He's just a man who made it. He was a good teacher. The man that grew up with him said, he is God. Isn't that great? I close with this. Hudson Taylor was used uniquely and mightily by our Lord in taking the gospel into the interior of China. For 50 years, I just finished reading his biography, in the 1800s, he was a quiet unassuming man, they say, that just had the expression of the presence of Christ on his face. He loved the Lord. He risked his life over and over and over again. In fact, he made the comment one time that they never established a new mission post without experiencing a riot. How's that for church planters? When he was an old man, he was in Australia. He was invited to speak Everywhere, one particular place, he was invited to speak to a large church. When he arrived, it was packed, standing room only. The moderator introduced Hudson Taylor with eloquent, well-chosen phrases that magnified the marvelous accomplishments of this missionary on the field. And he ended his introduction by referring to Hudson Taylor as, quote, our illustrious guest, end quote. The biographer wrote who was there that Mr. Taylor stood there quietly for a moment and then smiled and said quietly, Dear friends, I am the servant of an illustrious master. Sounds a little like James, doesn't it? I hope it will sound a little more like us as we go through this divine prescription by Dr. James on how to translate faith into life.